everyone, and welcome to another edition of Criminal Discourse Podcast. I'm Trish, and today we have a special guest host. Hello. It's Yvette. She's back with us again. This is like your third time, right? It is. For those that don't remember, Yvette is Maddie's mom, so she's stepping in for this week's episode. She's terribly not excited. <laughs> so. so before we begin, I do have some crime news. Okay, so, all right, you're just like your daughter. Okay, so some updates for some episodes that we have done. The Sophia Tuscon de Plantier case, which was just here in season three, episodes 98, 99, and 100. That was my big deep dive case. So an article in The Independent written by Sinan Maloney, I think I pronounced that right, reported that Sophia Tuscon de Plantier murder case has moved to fresh interviews with some already established witnesses and, quote, newly identified potential sources of information, unquote. The article goes on to say that the state, so we're talking about Ireland, is looking into entering plea bargaining immunity guarantees, or even witness protection with the hopes of breaking the case. So I don't know who these individuals are that they're maybe offering these things to. They don't mention that. The Guardi are viewing this case as a live one and not a cold case review. And the article points out that information submitted in the French trial of journalist Ian Bailey, who was found guilty in absentia, was redacted. A lot of the information sent over had been redacted on the basis that Ireland is still actively investigating this case. And this included a large amount of evidence from state pathologist Dr. John Harbison, and he passed away in 2020. So it's going on. I know Sophia Tuscon de Plantier's family is hopeful Ireland will be able to bring someone to prosecution for her murder. So in other crime news, Sheila Keen Warren, also known as the killer clown case out of Florida, and you know how much I love clowns. Oh, oh yeah. So this was from season one, episode 14. It's reported in March that Sheila Keen Warren's attorney claimed that the state of Florida concealed a possible suspect. So she's facing first-degree murder charges for this murder that occurred on May 26, 1990, and that was the murder of Marlene Warren. So this is Sheila Keene's Warren's former wife. Oh, her attorney claims that they have found a witness who was an inmate in 1991 in Maine and that Edward Barr confessed to killing Marlene Warren. Now, they state, the defense, that Detective Bill Williams had traveled to Maine to talk to Barr, but he could not promise Barr he wouldn't get the electric chair in Florida, because that's where this crime occurred. So when Barr conferred with an attorney, he decided to invoke his right to remain silent. So the defense claims that the prosecutor never even listed Barr in their case, and that when they went looking for evidence collected by the police in May of 2021, they found out that it had been sent out for forensic fingerprint testing and they wanted to compare it to Barr. So they're like finding this information out after the fact. Again, the defense claims that the state failed to disclose this information as Barr being a possible suspect. And they've asked for a continuance with her trial to give them time to investigate and for the judge to compel the prosecutors to hand over all evidence related to her case, which I think legally they have to do. So we'll see where that goes. But that is crime news. <laughs> all right. So now we're going to move on. <laughs> to our case here. But before I jump into that, I want to thank everybody that's reached out to us to give us case suggestions or just introduce themselves or even to give us a review. We greatly appreciate it. 
And if you would like to reach out to us or just to find a little more information about our podcast, you can go to our website at criminaldiscoursepodcast.com. On there, you will find all of our show notes, all of the resources we use to bring you the podcast, because we like to give credit where credit is due. And you can also listen to our episodes through the website, but you can also, of course, listen to our episodes on any platform that's out there pretty much. You can also reach us through our Facebook page at Criminal Discourse Podcast, our Insta at Criminal Dispod, D-I-S-P-O-D, and we also have a YouTube and Twitter channel. All right, so we are going to jump right into this. Our story takes place in Van Nuys, California. Now, Van Nuys is a neighborhood located in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, covering only about 8.99 square miles. So Van Nuys was founded in 1911 and named after one of the area ranchers and town developers, Isaac Newton Van Nuys. I guess he had an idol. Maybe. Because I don't think it's the Isaac Newton. I so, don't think so. <laughs> the film Fast Times at Ridgemont High used Van Nuys High School for their 1982 classic. Famous citizens from Van Nuys include actress Cindy Williams from Laverne and Shirley, singer-songwriter Diane Warren. You know, like I've had the time of my life. Yeah, That's her big one. And Olympian Mitch Gaylord, who was the first American gymnast to score a perfect 10. There you go. So around 6 p.m. on February 24, 1986, John Rutten, an engineer, returned home to his townhouse he shared with his new bride, Sherry Rasmussen. The couple had just married in November of 1986, so this was shortly over three months later. John pulled into the two-car garage located below the townhome, and their townhome was located in a gated community on Balboa Boulevard. And when he pulled in, he noticed that his wife's car, which was a silver two-door BMW, was gone, and the garage door was open. So he found that kind of strange. So he surmised that she might have changed her mind about going into work that day. She had said in the morning she really wasn't feeling that well, so she may call off work, but she had a presentation to give. So she worked as a critical care nurse in the coronary unit at Glendale Hospital, and she was actually the director of the critical care unit, which is pretty impressive. She was all of just 29 years old. So earlier that morning, John had left around 7.20 a.m. And like I said, Sherry wasn't feeling well and, and planned to call off sick. So what surprised John is that he had tried to reach out to her several times throughout the day to call her and she didn't pick up. And her sister also had tried to call. And again, no answer. And the answering machine wasn't even picking up their calls. So let's remember, 80s. Those lovely answering machines. So question, yep. the neighborhood, was it generally a safe neighborhood? Yes. Then the gated community and... Generally, yes. Yeah, there wasn't a lot of high crime, so I wouldn't say a high-risk area. So their habit, John and Sherry's, was that the last one to leave the townhome would turn on the machine when they were both out. So that way they would be able to pick up any messages. So he was surprised again that she didn't pick up the phone and she didn't turn on the answering machine and her car was gone. So he assumed, well, perhaps she had gone into work. So another surprise for John was noticing broken glass near the garage door entrance. So John thought perhaps, okay, maybe Sherry backing out had hit her side mirror and that wasn't uncommon for her to maybe damage her car when she backed out because I think a few weeks before she had damaged her car's antenna. Again, 86, they didn't retract and they weren't part of your back window. So you remember those things? <laughs> yes. They had to go up and down. So he thought, okay, so we'll have to talk about that when she gets home. So John used the door from the garage to go up to the second floor living area. So this townhome was three levels, garage being on the, you know, base level, ground level, leading to the living room, kitchen area. Then it led up to the third floor with the bedrooms. So upon entering the second floor living area, he saw Sherry. 
and she was lying on the living room floor, dead. She had been shot in the chest while still wearing her nightshirt and bathrobe. She also looked to have been beaten severely about her face, and John immediately called the police. So when Detective Mayer arrived, along with other police officers, they found the home ransacked, especially in the living room area, but they noticed there was no forced entry. There was a broken porcelain vase scattered over the living room floor, along with a partially collapsed entertainment center. And there were also documents littering the floor from a dumped out drawer. Now, detectives immediately began to form a theory that this was a botched robbery, where Sherry had interrupted the intruders and paid the ultimate price. Now, to back up this theory was a discarded stereo equipment, which had been stacked near the steps leading to the third floor. So detectives surmised that while one of the burglars was ransacking the living room, the other had surprised Sherry upstairs where a ferocious fight had begun. Now, Sherry was 29. She was in great shape. She worked out. She was over six feet tall, and she put up a hell of a fight. Sherry had been shot by a 38 caliber revolver and a bloody handprint was found near the front door, suggesting that Sherry had tried to get out of the unlocked front door or had at least hit the panic button on the alarm panel. The living room seemed to be the area where the fight had mostly centered. So even though their theory was someone had gone up there and surprised her, it somehow entered into the living room. Detectives theorized that Sherry and her assailant had fought for the gun. And at one point, Sherry may have gotten her attacker in a headlock, but was unable to hold it, perhaps due to the bite mark found on the inside of her left forearm. The vase was smashed over her head, incapacitating her. And once down, the assailant had fired the first of three shots, hitting Sherry in the chest. The killer then got a quilted blanket off the couch and used it to the muffle the sounds of the other two shots. So... The first shot when they got out of the headlock, and then two more muffled by the blanket. Two additional shots that had been taken had hit the sliding glass door, causing the glass to shatter. So there were five shots total, three in Sherry and then two that didn't hit her. So through canvassing the neighborhood after Sherry's murder, detectives would come to find that a housekeeper next door had heard what sounded like a domestic situation from Sherry's unit. But she didn't call the police as she had not heard any gunshots. She had just heard the arguing. Sherry's murder would be one of 831 murders to occur in Los Angeles in 1986. So that was high for all of the L.A. area, but not necessarily Van Nuys. Right. I mean, it had its share. So police would also find Sherry's BMW two miles away from the couple's home. This was 10 days after her murder. Her keys were still in the ignition. And the only other items besides Sherry's car that was stolen from the couple's townhouse was the couple's marriage license. That's very bizarre. Keep that in mind. So at 2 a.m., criminalist Lloyd Mahaney from the Los Angeles County Coroner's Office arrived on scene. He first looked for any trace evidence on Sherry's body, but really nothing stood out. There were no hair, fibers, or fluids. He then collected some swabs to rule in or out that a sexual assault may have taken place. And it would come to be found that Sherry was not sexually assaulted. Next, Mahaney swabbed the bite mark on Sherry's arm, placing it in a six-inch tube with a rubber stopper. And he labeled it with his initials and the coroner's case number. As per procedure, he then placed the tube inside a 5 by 7 evidence envelope with Sherry's name on it, the description of the contents, and where they were collected. All of Mahaney's evidence was booked into evidence at 10.25 a.m. on February 25, 1986. Now, Sherry's autopsy was conducted two days after her murder. The coroner was able to recover the three bullets, and one was under the skin in her back, and two from clothing under her back. Two shots to her upper chest area and a third to her upper abdomen. 
Now, one of the three shots fired had a direct contact wound with her chest, meaning the muzzle of the gun was right up against her chest. All three shots were considered fatal, so the first one would have killed her. Sherry had numerous trauma points on her face. One was consistent with a blow from the muzzle of the gun. She had several lacerations around her right eye and left cheek and the left side of her throat. There were also marks on her wrist that may have indicated that she had been or someone had attempted to restrain her at one point. Now, this injury was consistent with a tied up rope or cord, and I believe they found one at the scene. They don't talk a lot about it, but in some things I read, they did find a cord nearby. Now, John Rutten was quickly cleared as a suspect. He had a solid alibi as he was at work all day, and he was really devastated by his wife's murder, and they were newlyweds. They had not been married that long. John and Sherry had met the year and a half prior to their marriage and had instantly fallen in love, and they were both up-and-coming professionals, and again, still in that newlywed phase of their life together. And John couldn't really think of anyone who would want to hurt Sherry, but some of Sherry's friends and family did. Nels and Loretta Rasmussen, Sherry's parents, would be notified of their daughter's death, not from John, but John's father, and not the day of her murder, but the next day. The Rasmussens resided in Arizona, where Nels was a dentist and Loretta his office manager. And the Rasmussens, by all accounts, were a very close family and, like John, were devastated by Sherry's murder. Nels right away voiced his suspicion as to who had done this to his daughter. And he would call Detective Mayer and ask if he had checked out John's ex, quote, the lady cop, unquote. Detective Mayer, however, was sticking to his theory that Sherry's murder was a result of a botched robbery. To bolster his theory, there had been a break-in where two Hispanic males had assaulted a female who was in her home at the time, and this was in the same neighborhood, and about 10 days later. Nels, however, wasn't buying it. He reported to the detective that his daughter had called him to complain about John's ex-girlfriend in the weeks prior to her murder. His daughter told him that his ex-girlfriend, and Sherry did not give her dad a name, was a Los Angeles police officer. Detective Mayer wrote down what Nels told him and filed it away, but didn't appear to follow up on any of that information. And John Rutten had also told the detective about his ex-girlfriend two days after the murder during a crime scene walkthrough. Now, years later, Detective Mayer would deny ever having been told by either Rutten or Nels about this ex-girlfriend. So the Rasmussen's were frustrated by the lack of progress on Sherry's case. Nels didn't feel that his information was being taken seriously or it was being outright ignored because he was pointing the finger at one of their own. Eight months after Sherry's murder, the Rasmussens offered a $10,000 reward for any information regarding who murdered their daughter. In 1988, Nels would write a letter to then-Chief of Police Daryl Gates asking him to look into John's ex-girlfriend to either rule her in or rule her out as a suspect. And he never got a reply. But Nels didn't give up and would continue to call Detective Mayer about John's ex. At one point in talking to, I believe, another detective, I don't think it was Detective Mayer, he was told that, quote, he watched too much television, unquote. And Sherry's case went cold. So had Detective Mayer, the lead detective, followed up on Nell's information about the lady cop, perhaps Sherry's case could have been solved sooner. Besides Sherry's father asking for John's ex-girlfriend to be checked out, others had concerns about his ex as well. Sherry had confided in a close friend about an incident where John's ex, Stephanie Lazarus, had come into her office at the hospital dressed very provocatively. She confronted Sherry, telling her that if she couldn't have John then no one could. And if their marriage didn't work out, 
then she would be there to pick up the pieces. And Sherry also told her father about this confrontation. So there were other incidences as well leading up to the Rutan's marriage. Lazarus had showed up at their home uninvited, asking John to wax her skis for her. Now Sherry told John, like, no, don't do that. But John, not wanting things to escalate, did end up waxing her skis for her. Sherry also told another friend of being fearful of Lazarus as she kept showing up in places all around town that Sherry was at. And Sherry didn't think this was just a coincidence. Sherry told her dad that she had seen someone one day following her that was dressed like a boy and said that that person had wild looking or crazy eyes. Sherry also feared that John and Stephanie's relationship might not have been truly over, but John continually reassured her it was. So who was Stephanie Lazarus? John met Stephanie Lazarus when they were both attending UCLA and had been living in the same dorm on campus. And the two hung out with a group of friends and eventually they casually hooked up from time to time with their relationship turning more intimate after they graduated. Now, according to an article in The Atlantic entitled The Lazarus File by Matthew McGow in November 2001, 15 years after Sherry's murder, the LAPD's new cold case homicide unit had started. And this was about seven detectives combing through over 7,000 cold cases, looking for one that had the best chance of being solved, especially if there was DNA evidence. So at this point, they still have not talked to the lady cop. Nope, they have not talked to the lady cop. So that article that I'm referencing, you can find a link in our show notes. So of these 7,000 cases, they got it down to about 14,000 cases from 1960 through 1998. And Sherry's case had the potential they were looking for. And it wasn't until September 2003 that the request for DNA analysis would be put in by the cold case unit on Sherry's murder. So although the request was placed, it would take another year until the LAPD crime lab would start the process due to staffing shortages. Finally, in December 2004, criminalist Jennifer Francis started working on the request. So the first step was to analyze a blood swatch, which developed Sherry's DNA profile. So what was tested was a part of a fingernail and a blood-stained towel, and that it only showed Sherry's blood. So Francis noted that there was a bite mark swab taken but it wasn't in the evidence she had. So she put in a request to the coroner's office to try to locate this missing piece of evidence. Finally, after about a week later, they found it. But the five by seven envelope looked pretty torn up. There was one tear at one end of it in which the red stopper tube was protruding it through. Now the red stopper cap and the tube were still sealed. That wasn't damaged, just the envelope. They found this piece of evidence and where they found it is it had somehow slipped in the back of the freezer and had kind of fallen down. And that's the only reason they found this evidence. It was still there. All the other evidence had one article I read, a lot of it had disappeared from the case. So when analyzed, it showed a mixture of two DNA profiles, one of Sherry's and the other her potential killer. There were no hits and codas to the mystery profile, but all was not lost as Francis had noticed that this particular profile had an interesting gender marker. Both analyses on Sherry's bite mark had come back as belonging to females. One was Sherry, and the other was an unknown female suspect. Francis's report was sent to the cold case unit on February 8, 2005. 
Now, unfortunately, this new information added to Sherry's file would not be acted upon for a few more years. This seemed to be due to California Proposition 69 bill that allowed police to collect DNA samples from arrested felons or sex crime convictions and also people currently incarcerated. So if you were arrested or convicted, you had your DNA taken. If you had a felony or a sex crime. And then if you were incarcerated for those crimes, you had your DNA taken. So you can imagine the overload they got in terms of solving cases. And this ended up overwhelming cold case units with CODIS-based cold hits. So in early 2007, Detective Robert Budd had taken over the cold case unit that had been successful up to that point with solving 40 old murder cases. Now, in moving the unit to a more spacious location, all of the old still unsolved files were sent back to the divisions they originated from. So in Sherry's case, that meant Van Nuys. So in March 2008, Detective Budd accepted a transfer to the Van Nuys Homicide Unit, and in February 2009, he and his team of three other detectives, Pete Barba, Mark Martinez, and Jim Nuttle, began reinvestigating Sherry's case again. And this was due to a significant homicide drop in the Van Nuys area. So they went from 30 or 40 per year in recent years down to five or seven. That's amazing. Yeah. They had time on their hands. And what stood out to Detective Bud in reviewing Sherry's DNA analysis report from 2005 was the genetic female marker, as that did not match up with the original theory of a robbery being interrupted. So starting from the beginning, but this time looking at it through a lens of a female perpetrator and going through all the evidence that the detectives had, they came up with a list of five names. And Stephanie Lazarus was one of them. There was a notation in the original file that noted that John Rutten's ex-girlfriend's name with a P.O. beside it. Now, detectives didn't put it together that P.O. stood for police officer until they had talked to John, who told him that his ex worked for the LAPD. Now, with Stephanie Lazarus on the suspect list, they needed to maintain secrecy, so not to damage her exemplary record. And she really did. She had spent the last 23 years working her way up through the LAPD to become a detective. She had an unblemished record. There were no complaints, no citations for misconduct. She was awarded the Officer of the Year twice. Currently, she was working in the high-profile art theft division. And Lazarus was also married to another detective who worked in that division. So the detectives didn't want her or anybody really to become aware of their investigation as they worked through the evidence. So soon they were able to eliminate three of the five suspects, leaving Lazarus and a nurse that Sherry had worked with as the remaining two. So detectives work to obtain the nurse's DNA secretively as they can, right? With things that they throw away, they can collect. And by mid-April, it came back negative. Now they were down to one. So detectives looked at the connection between Lazarus and Sherry, which of course was John Rutten. Rutten and Lazarus again met at UCLA, casually dated up to about June 84, and then he met Sherry in June of 84. And the couple got engaged in May of 85, so almost a year later. Now, Lazarus learned of Rutten's engagement in June of 85, and this effectively put an end to their casual hookups. Or did they? John admitted to detectives in a 2009 interview that in June, when Lazarus had found out that he was going to get married, she contacted him extremely upset, asking to meet. So John went over to Lazarus's place to talk to her and tell her he was set on marrying Sherry. Lazarus begged him to reconsider, telling him she loved him and wanted a committed relationship instead of this casual thing they had going on. However, for whatever reason, the two ended up having sex. 
Now he's engaged to another woman. And I don't know if this was kind of closure or she begged him for one last time, but they ended up having sexual relations. And it was after this meetup, this rendezvous, so to speak, that Lazarus confronted Sherry at her place of work. So detectives also discovered a second time where Lazarus had confronted Sherry. This information came from Sherry's father, who reported that Sherry told him that one day she found Lazarus standing in her living room in full police uniform. Sherry had no idea how she had gotten in. There was another verbal altercation that left her scared. You know, she's sharing this with her dad. Could you imagine coming down and finding a stranger? Well, not a stranger. She knew who she was, but in full police uniform in your home. Well, yes. And after she already had been following her at some point. Right. Correct. Yeah. And confronted her at her workplace and kind of gave her veiled threats. So next detectives needed to figure out if Lazarus would have been on duty the day of the murder. They figured that if she did carry out this crime, it would have to be on a day she had off. And they found out Lazarus did not work on the day of the murder. Now, knowing that a 38 caliber gun was used, did Lazarus own a 38? This would have been either a backup or off-duty gun. So in 1986, LAPD officers were required to use federal .38J plus P ammunition in their weapons. So they, they were required to use certain ammunition. This was the type of ammunition that was used to kill Sherry. So on April 30th, 2009, detectives entered Lazarus's name into the California gun registry, and they find that she had reported on March 9th, 1986, her registered 38 had been stolen. And this was 13 days after Sherry's murder. According to the stolen gun report, Lazarus had reported the theft to the Santa Monica Police Department, claiming that her car had been broken into and had been parked near the Santa Monica Pier. The thieves had broken into the driver's side door, punching the lock and stealing her blue gym bag. Now, in the gym bag were her clothes, cassette tapes, because this was the 80s, and her Smith & Weston 38 revolver. Lazarus, when she was making the report, made sure to identify herself as an LAPD police officer. So the two departments, Van Nuys and Santa Monica, never put two and two together. And Lazarus had brought a different model backup piece on March 19, 1986. So really, detectives at this point were really trying to rule her out because they're thinking, oh, if she worked that day, probably not. If she still had her backup piece, probably not. Or had a different backup piece registered, probably not. But it didn't work out that way. So the Van Nuys detectives knew they needed to bring in those in a higher command to make them aware of what was going on because they were looking into one of their own, having committed murder. So the chief of the Valley Bureau was informed of the investigation and allowed Van Nuys to run with it until a DNA sample could be obtained. Now, if it turned out that that sample matched, then the case would go to the Robbery Homicide Division of the LAPD as they were the ones responsible for handling all profile cases. And let's face it, this would have been a high profile case. So on May 27, 2009, detectives surveilled Lazarus as he was running errands around town. After observing Lazarus and her daughter eating lunch, they collected a discarded cup and straw from the trash. On May 29th, a confirmed match was made. Lazarus' saliva matched the saliva from the bite mark left on Sherry's arm. There was a 1.7 sextillion chance of it belonging to someone else. That's 17 followed by 20 zeros. So pretty much definitive. Sherry's case was transferred to robbery homicide and two new detectives, Stearns and Jeremillo, were brought up to speed. Afterwards, they met with the prosecutor who would be assigned to prosecute Stephanie Lazarus. 
there were constant concerns about the case leaking out. So for the next week, detectives actually worked out of the prosecutor's office instead of their main office because that was right across the hall from the art theft division in the Parker Center. So two detectives from the Van Nuys unit traveled to Arizona to actually talk to Sherry's family and to get on record statements from them. Now, not being able to tell Sherry's family that they were close to making an arrest, they asked the family to be a little more patient with them. And they had waited over 23 years. Could they wait a little more? Detectives next planned how they were going to interview Lazarus and ultimately arrest her without putting anybody in jeopardy as she had a firearm. It was decided that they would interview her in the jail at the Parker Center as cops had to turn over their guns before entering. That's just procedure. So under the guise of wanting to get her assistance on a case they were working on, the detectives went to her, said, hey, can we meet up? And this was the morning of Friday, June 5th. So while detectives were meeting with Lazarus, Detective Nuttall returned to Arizona, arranging another meeting with Erasmusens for Friday morning to be the first one to tell her family that Stephanie Lazarus had been arrested. So as soon as they did it, they were calling him and he was telling the family. After Lazarus arrived in the interrogation room, detectives started talking to her about the case involving her ex-boyfriend and the murder of his wife. For more than an hour, detectives questioned Lazarus on her relationship with John Rutten and if she had ever met Sherry and if the two had ever gotten into an argument. Now, at first, Lazarus claimed that, well, she couldn't really remember John's wife or if they had ever met. But eventually, she said she thought they had, but they'd never been in an argument. She told detectives that John Bruton was a close friend and they had only dated casually, but she was evasive when it came to how long or when was the last time she spoke to him. You can watch some of this interview. I believe I have some connections in the show notes through episodes that have been done on this case. I think 48 Hours did one. So I think it's still floating out there on YouTube, but I did put it in the show notes. And she is. At first, she's kind of really like, why are you asking me this? Or gosh, I don't know. You know, like kind of really vague. Well, maybe, maybe I met her. Um, No, you know, it's just kind of, again, downplaying everything. She has to know the gig is up. I mean, you're being right. questioned after right. just, 23 just years. Just say it. Yeah. So the interview ended when detectives asked if Lazarus was willing to give a DNA sample. And she told them at that point she wanted a lawyer and she went to leave the room. Now, when she was in the hallway, she was placed under arrest by robbery homicide detectives and she was put in handcuffs. So Lazarus was transported to the Los Angeles County Jail for Females in Linwood. And on June 9th, 2009, Stephanie Lazarus was charged with the first-degree murder of Sherry Rasmussen. Her bail would be set at $10 million, which was pretty shocking, because given around this same time was the Phil Spector case, where he had shot that woman in his home, and his bail was only set at a million. So Stephanie Lazarus would go on trial in early 2012, where prosecutors would paint a portrait of a jealous, obsessed woman who couldn't get over the fact that John Rutten was going to marry someone else. Prosecutor Shannon Presby told the jury that, quote, a bite, a bullet, a gun barrel and a broken heart, unquote, were the motives for Sherry's murder. Lazarus' own diary entries were placed into evidence to back up this theory. I can't I can't believe she still had them. Yeah, the why 80s. would you keep them? She probably shouldn't have. So these diaries covered the period between November 1984 and August 86. The prosecutor even showed that Lazarus had written to John Rutten's mother in August of 85, telling her that she was, quote, truly in love with John, unquote. Lazarus would note in her diary that she received a letter back from Rutten's mother that made her very, very, very sad. 
So the prosecutors called on former friends and academy cadets to testify as to Lazarus' ability to commit such a crime. Michael Hargraves, a friend and former roommate, as well as a former police officer, testified that Lazarus had an outstanding fitness level and her strength with respect to other female officers was superior. Hargraves also testified that Lazarus was an expert shooter. Jamie Weaver mentioned in the appeal that I read claimed that sometime between 85 and 87, Lazarus had shown them a lock picking tools and told them she had learned how to use them. During the search of Lazarus' home when her diaries were found, detectives also uncovered a daily planner where Lazarus mentioned two books on locksmithing and lock picking. Now, those books were not found, just the mention in these planners and diary. But that could explain how she showed up in her living room uninvited. The defense, led by attorney Mark Overland, would tell the jury that the initial investigation into Sherry's murder was botched, as was the DNA evidence that was presented. The defense put on a witness that testified as to Lazarus' character and had never witnessed any violent behavior on or off duty. Initially, the defense wanted to present evidence of a burglary theory, but the court excluded it. The defense also wanted to bring into evidence the April 11, 1986 burglary that occurred just over a mile from Sherry's condominium. Now, this was a daytime burglary. Stereo equipment was involved, as was a gun. And the court stated that although there were similarities, that's kind of where it ended. As the second burglary, the perpetrators had forced their way into the home. There was no forced entry into Sherry's residence. The April burglary involved the ransacking of the occupant's bedroom with jewelry that had been stolen. There was no jewelry stolen from Sherry, just her car, and marriage certificate. Finally, when the burglars had been discovered by the homeowner, they ran off. They never even discharged their weapon. And in Sherry's case, she had been badly beaten, bit, and fired upon. So on March 8, 2012, 25 years after Sherry's brutal murder, Stephanie Lazarus was found guilty and sentenced in May 2012 to 27 years to life. John Bruton spoke at Lazarus' sentencing, stating, quote, The fact that Sherry's death occurred because she met me and married me brings me to my knees, unquote. Stephanie Lazarus will be eligible for parole in 2039. Now, in one final act, Nels and Loretta Rasmussen filed a wrongful death suit against Lazarus in July 2010. Now, this was before her trial, and their case was still in pretrial motions after Lazarus convicted. But the case had been eventually heard, and the Rasmussens won a $10 million settlement. Now, Lazarus appealed this suit because of the statute of limitations has expired for them to file. That was her claim. But she lost that and was ordered to pay the original settlement and all of the Rasmussen's appeal court costs. And that is the murder of Sherry Rasmussen. Well, thankfully, that envelope was lost or that probably would have been gone, too. Well, yeah, I read in one point that there was a detective, and this wasn't uncommon for detectives to go to the coroner's office and come and collect evidence and move it somewhere else. And they have a record of this detective. I forget what his name is. He wasn't part of the investigation or anything. He had come and collected a lot of evidence, and Sherry's was some of it. But for whatever reason, they can't find some of it. Mm -hmm. So whether it was intentionally lost or just lost, we'll never know. The Rasmussen's also filed a suit against the LAPD. Because they were, well, they were livid. Because again, he was, dad knows. Dad was telling him, check this woman out. And they never did. And they never did. Because at the time, she'd only been on the force three years. Still kind of a rookie in a way. 
And they didn't even look into it because this detective was so tunnel vision that no, no, it's it's a burglary. He gave an interview and he showed these sketches of two Hispanic males who he said were illegals. I don't know how he knew he was illegals because they didn't even know who the Hispanic males were. And those Hispanic males have never been found. But this was his theory and he was sticking to it. So he was confronted when 48 Hours did their story they had an interview with him. He didn't want to be on tape. And that's when he claimed like, no, I never heard of that. Uh, you know, the ex being a cop. What? <laughs> Even though he'd written it in his notes. Mm. Had he not been so tunnel visioned and looked at everything, perhaps her family wouldn't have to wait over 25 years to get justice. So yeah, Stephanie Lazarus is in prison. And I'm not sure how you pay a $10 million settlement from prison. Yeah, that's... Yeah. Not going to happen. I don't know if they can go after her pension because they did allow her to retire from the LAPD. With her pension? Uh-huh. I don't know if they can touch it, though. You know, it's kind of like the OJ thing. They couldn't touch his NFL pension. Yeah. So I, I don't know. So she is up for parole uh, in 2039, 17 more years. It's just a sad case all around. What interested me in this case was the fact that this woman went on to have an exceptional career. I mean, there's no complaints, there's no brutality, there's no nothing. And she did good things while in the LAPD. She started a daycare for other cops. She was the first one to like reach out to other cops. I mean, she really was an exemplary officer who committed murder. You would think she would have shown some signs of being mentally unbalanced. Something. You do see when Sherry was telling her dad about the person dressed as a boy that had like wild looking eyes or crazy eyes. If you Google... Stephanie Lazarus, it'll bring up her court photos where she's in the orange prison jumpsuit and her eyes are crazy eyes. Yeah. Well, I mean, they're big. They just look like big bulging eyes like, oh, OK, that's intense. Yeah. I don't know if, you know, 23 years of exemplary service as an LAPD officer doesn't really wipe out the fact that you took an innocent woman's life. So there we go. And when she was in, the, I think, in this case against the Rasmussen's, the civil case, she didn't deny she killed Sherry. Yeah. There we go. Good case. Interesting. So if you guys thought this case was interesting, let us know. Let us get some feedback and, and what you think. And all we would ask is on whatever platform you listen to us on, you know, if you could leave us a review, that'd be great. If you could leave us a five star, that'd be even better. All right, guys. So until next time, if you see something, I'm going to say here's something like the housekeeper next door that heard the domestic violence, what she thought was a domestic violence incident. Pick up the phone. Call the police. Who knows what could have happened? You might have that missing piece of the puzzle it takes to solve a crime. So as always, we want you to stay safe out there. I thank a vet for pitch hitting in. I do greatly. It was nice being here. No problem. <laughs> she, if you can't tell, does not really enjoy doing this, but she does this because she's my friend and I am so thankful for that. All right, guys, until next time, stay safe out there, but let's watch out for each other and be kind to one another. Till next time, guys. Bye. You have to say bye. Bye. Okay. Bye.